Another busy day, time for a break. Meet you in the tea room. The Tea Room is the podcast for GPs where we delve into what matters most to you and what GPs are talking about. From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in our next Long COVID special podcast. Heidi Ledford is a widely published science journalist at Nature. Although she mainly covers biomedicine stories, she's recently been pulling apart statistics for long COVID globally. What has she discovered? Let's find out. Thanks for joining us, Heidi Ledford. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. So Heidi, tell us about some of the common errors that you see when we're reading long COVID statistics. You know, it's it's really tricky. I mean, it's everyone sort of wants a, a top line figure on this. We want to know what's the risk, what's my risk, you know, if I become infected and so yeah, on. Yeah. We want a number like 17.2%, you know, That's or something right. like that. But um, the problem is that as these studies come out, when you look at them, you can really see the differences among the different studies. They're defining just the definition of long COVID itself is quite different from one study to the next. Um, and then the way the studies are conducted, do they have a control? What does that control look like? Is that an appropriate control? Um, what is their study sample? Have they biased? Is the sample biased in some way, maybe towards people who sought health care for their COVID infection or towards people who are wealthy enough and have the free time to download an app and, and submit their symptoms every week or something yeah. like that? So you end up with a wide range of estimates. So one of the problems with long COVID is the definition. There's a variety of definitions around the place. What are some of the more common and the more different definitions that you've come across? Yeah, so there's, it's a mess right now. And it's one of the main things that I hear from researchers is, oh, we need some kind of consensus definition. And there have been efforts to build a consensus definition, but they've they've sort of fallen short. They've not really People will say, oh, you know, for example, the, the World Health Organization tried to come up with a definition. Mm. There's a lot of argument that, you know, they didn't consult the patient community, the patient advocates enough on that definition. So you and you end up with different studies defining it in different ways. I mean, one of the most common differences was just, you know, what at what point do you stop calling it an acute COVID infection and you start to say, oh, no, this is something post-acute. This is a long COVID symptom. Is there um, some so, general yeah. consensus now that that might be 12 weeks? Yes. So I do feel like that consensus is starting to emerge that you do see more with 12 weeks, you know, as the cutoff line there. Yeah. So that's something where we are seeing some movement, but then, you know, which symptoms come under long COVID? There are some studies where they used to say, you know, do you have the symptoms been persistent since your infection as, as sort of a, a criterion. But, you know, we know with long COVID that people can have sort of a kind of relapsing remitting, you know, where they, they appear to get better and then they relapse again, very frustrating and mm. also very difficult to capture, you know, from medical records and so on. So that can be part of the definition. There's also an issue with the definition of how do you define a control, a negative control? You know, if someone says, oh, no, I've never had COVID. Well, have they or haven't they? Mm. <laughs> <You know>? When <laughs> did they have COVID? We don't know. You know, you can test for antibodies, but it's not always the case that people have a long-term antibody response that you can detect with these with these sorts of tests. So mm. it gets quite tricky. Some research was showing there's up to 200 different kinds of symptoms that oh, can yes. be identified. Yeah. 200. 
I know. I mean, I can't even, I couldn't list 200 symptoms for you of anything right now, I don't think. I'm happy I Um, don't have 200 symptoms, but uh, most people don't have all 200 symptoms. They'll have a a variety and it's quite nebulous. Right, they've got the infinite, I mean, it's not infinite, but the massive number of permutations of these symptoms. And then the degree of severity can can be very different as well. I mean, I've known people with, with what I would, you know, what we consider to be long COVID, who just, you know, had a little difficulty going up the stairs for a while, you know, fatigue, which can be very debilitating, even if it's mild, if it's consistent, but, you know, something they were able to work through. And then I've known people who've had long COVID and couldn't walk out the front door for months, Mm. right? So it's, the manifestation of it varies so widely. It's quite difficult. You know, part of the issue as well, not to go on a tangent, but part of the issue as well is that it's very possible that long COVID is a, is a mixed bag, right? That it's, there are a number of different possible causes for long COVID. And it's entirely likely that, you know, one person is having some kind of autoimmune response. Another person might be having a response to a lingering bits of virus that are in their system and so on. You know, so it's, it's a very heterogeneous group and that makes it really, really hard to study. So it could be latching on to existing weaknesses or comorbidities and amplifying yes. those that are already there right. and exactly. that, that feeds into the, the loop as well. Yeah. So there's symptoms with a huge variety of symptoms with a huge combination of possible symptoms and a huge degree in which those symptoms are experienced. How those symptoms are recorded in the claims and electronic medical records is also quite disparate. That's right. And that's something that your listeners probably will know more about than I do. But what I've been told is that absolutely someone comes in to the doctor and, you know, something needs to be recorded on their health record. It's not necessarily going to be a complete compendium of every symptom they've shown and every detail of what they've had. They're going to put something down there for a code. So you get, you know, this kind of skew, I guess, when it comes to how things are recorded. You also get a skew in the patient population when you're looking at electronic health records. I mean, you're looking at the people who came to the doctor for their for their COVID infection or, were, you know, for some reason, and then were found to have a COVID infection and then reported to the doctor again, oh, you know, it's been this long and I've had these symptoms. But I mean, we've all known plenty of people and maybe, you know, including myself, I guess, who have had COVID, never went to the doctor, you know, have had lingering symptoms, but just got on with it because they were able to, but nevertheless, you know, had something that might've counted as long COVID didn't go to the doctor, you know, Mm -hmm. are they now in the control group? Like it's a bit, it's a bit hard to really parse all of this when you're looking at just the coding that goes into the electronic medical record. And then diversity is probably not terribly well represented when you look at the systemic barriers of people actually getting healthcare in the first place. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, again, I'm from the United States. That's a particular problem. I think there, I can't speak to Australia, um, oh, in yeah. the UK, we've, it's slightly we've got, less. We've got of a our problem. own challenges in that space. Yeah, I mean, even in the UK, if you think about it, where they have the the national healthcare system, which I think is the best thing about living here. But even then, you know, to go to the doctor means you've taken time off from work, right? Like you've had to be able to have that flexibility that you can do that. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that already selects for a population there, right? You have to have the, I guess, the the luxury and the privilege of being able to take a day off work. That's right and not suffer financially, not have an impact, and then the mobility to be able to get to the doctor. That's right. That's very big, isn't it? The mobility to get there. I mean, there's all sorts of things. If you're caring for a young child or you're caring for an elder who's who's ill, then, you know, can you get to the doctor? Maybe not. Like, mm. There's all way, sorts of ways that that selects out segments of the population. When we put this all together, it makes us question, okay, so long COVID stats, can we actually rely on them or not? Are they, you know, how can we make 
policy based on this information. So that was exactly my question because I was getting really frustrated, <laughs> right? Because when you have a range, when you look at these studies and people are saying, well, it's somewhere between five and 50%, we think, looking around, you know, all of the studies that are out there in terms of the incidence of long COVID. And I just think that's huge. You know, if I'm a, an individual trying to make a decision and you've got five versus 50%, I don't know how to calculate that risk benefit you know, yeah. of anything. It's pretty broad. So it's very broad, but I did speak to one researcher who's been using electronic health records to study, particularly to study long COVID. And he just reminded me, I guess, this is the way medical research works, that you don't get this one answer. You don't mm -hmm. get your 17.2%. You get a lot of different lines of evidence and you have to sort of weave those together like threads, you know, to pull out some kind of truth. So the example that he gave was, you know, the effort to try to figure out how much does vaccination reduce your risk of long COVID? And, you know, obviously, if vaccination reduces your risk of infection, that's already, you know, a benefit. Mm. But in the case of a breakthrough infection, if you are vaccinated and get acute COVID anyway, what is the chance that you'll go on to develop long COVID? And again, studies have just thrown up all kinds of different answers on that, you know, not much protection all the way up to maybe 50%. So it's, that was a really frustrating thing. But he said, you know, if you look at that data, what do you see? You see that vaccines help. <laughs> and that's, that's the message you take away. So I thought, you know, when I look at five to 50%, you know, as a figure, as a range roughly for the incidence of long COVID following, uh, you know, a, a coronavirus infection, then what's the truth I take from that? And the truth I took from it was, there's a lot of people with long COVID. You know, there's a lot of infections right now. And even if you take the low end of that range, that's a lot of people who are getting sick. So talk to me a little bit more about vaccines better than no vaccines. Is that something that has been found across pretty much most of the research? Do you think that's emerging as a consensus? And, you know, the question is just a bit sort of, well, how much better are vaccines than no vaccines? With respect to preventing long COVID? Yes. How much better are vaccines versus no vaccines when it comes to preventing long COVID? But the general consensus does seem to be that there is some benefit there. That is something I think people need to take into their minds when they're sort of working on their own risk-benefit calculations on life at the moment. Absolutely. And the benefit is not just that it reduces your risk of getting COVID, but if you do get COVID, it reduces your risk of getting long COVID. Is that right? That's the thinking, yeah. And yeah. so that's what seems to be emerging from the data so far. So some studies will say yeah. risk is reduced by 50%, which is pretty good. Hmm. I'll take that. Some studies might say, yeah, exactly, right? There was a study, it was disappointing to everyone because it only showed 15%. Well, okay, that's not as good as 50%, but that's still something, you know. Hey, but if that's 15% of me not getting brain fog, I'll take it. I'll take that too. <laughs> exactly, isn't it? I mean, to go on about your normal life with that, you know, and have a less, less of a chance. It really is hard to make these decisions on an individual level, isn't it? I mean, without having this kind of data and you can see different people responding to it in different ways. You have people who sort of disregard the risk of long COVID altogether. And you have people who are so worried about it all the time. And, you know, it's, it's, it really would be nice to be able to give them some kind of guidance, I think. But it is true, you know, 15% to reduce your risk of brain fog would be absolutely worth it. Oh, yeah. It is, as you say, it's an incredibly personal choice as well for people. And, you know, with our audience and in the tea room are largely GPs. This is information that they are going to be able to communicate to their patients as well, because they're still having ongoing conversations around vaccination. One of the conversations that might be starting to emerge is 
around maybe a complacency for future vaccinations. So in Australia, we don't have a high number of our population with long COVID yet or haven't yet been identified. We've only just started opening up long COVID clinics um, a couple of months ago. Oh, interesting. In Australia, or a bit earlier this year, because we waited, we had so many lockdowns until most of the population was vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Now we are starting to see long COVID emerge. There's been projections based on the NHS data bases around what we are likely to see in Australia with the Omicron wave that we've had. And it's, you know, it's pretty significant what yeah. the impact is going to be. And so the policy and funding that's going to need to be around that is pretty sizable. But as this complex virus continues to have new strains and new variants, we're going to have to develop new vaccines. And the potential is that populations will become a little bit complacent with vaccines for COVID, just as we are a little bit complacent about vaccines for flu, Mm -hmm. influenza. So that's one of the concerns that is there a possibility that, that we will head down that path and that long COVID might actually expand? You know, I really, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I could see that happening. And it's, and I could also see, you know, another situation, I don't know how much they discuss it, you know, for example, politicians in Australia, but I do feel in the United Kingdom and in the United States, the two, you know, countries I know the most about that I don't hear a lot from high up about long COVID. I hear about it from physicians and friends, researchers, I don't hear a lot from politicians and public health officials about long COVID, not to the extent that I would have expected. And I feel like that allows it to sort of slip from the public mind. So then that, I think that could add to the complacency, that sense that, well, it's fine. It's just a cold, right? It's a lot of talk about how it's just a cold now. It's just like the flu. See, that really surprises me. I had this assumption that we're not talking about it it's in Australia. It's certainly not something that's on the policy table. There are health economic researchers who are, are crying out to be listened to so that policy mm-hmm. will be able to be put in place early rather than too late. Oh, but that's good. I, well, I assumed that we weren't, wasn't really talked about much in Australia because we just hadn't had the huge numbers that you've had in the UK and the US. But that's wonderful, by the way. I didn't realize that. Like, that's a fantastic natural study there. Yeah. <laughs> to well, look at Australia and see going into it, knowing what long COVID is, because the rest of the countries have sort of discovered it, you know, and then been, you know, caught on the back foot. But anyway, yeah. yes. I'm surprised that there's not more talk about it in the UK where you are, because you've got such well-established and long-running research into long COVID compared mm-hmm. to Australia, where it hasn't been an issue until more recently. And it's certainly not in the public uh, discussion. It's not in the public debate, really, except for people in, I guess, the medical sector. There is a bit of coverage in the media, but then yeah. it's how do we how do we equip people with the information about how to prevent long COVID or how to get treatment for it without fear mongering? And mm-hmm. are people fatigued now about hearing about COVID? So there's a whole lot at play when it comes to yeah. educating people, and that's where GPs are central to Absolutely. when working with their patients. Yeah. I mean, I really, the GPs, I think, must really be struggling with this because it's so hard to to diagnose and define. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I know who've had COVID and then, you know, sometime later they say, well, I feel, you know, still tired, but I don't know, I'm getting older too. You know, it could be X, Y, Z. They have, you know, a list of, it could be long COVID, it could be um, a dozen other things. Yeah. I think the GPs must really be struggling to to sort all of that out and and then how to counsel their patients on 
I guess not only on treatment, but then also on vaccines and how worried they should be about these things. And I guess that's that's why I wanted to have a talk to you today about your understanding of the long COVID statistics and what those common threads are. So maybe you could just, as we wrap up, reiterate what the common threads you found in your research around long COVID statistics. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, I think in terms of the incidence of long COVID, I guess the the range that I often hear is about five to 50%. And that's a huge range. And that also only captures, you know, some of the research, but it's, it's, it's a sort of where the consensus kind of seems to be heading. And when I look at that, I think that's really hard to gauge my own personal risk based on that. But what I can say from that is that that sounds like a lot of people with long COVID at this point, because we've had just so, so many infections. And when you magnify even 5% across a country's population, it's just huge. Mm. Um, And then, you know, the other emerging truth is that vaccines do seem to help when it comes to preventing long COVID. So even if you have a vaccine and then have a breakthrough infection, which is unfortunate, And with Omicron, you know, was frequently the case that the vaccines can still reduce your chances of developing long COVID after that breakthrough infection. I think that's really important. And that does, I think you made a really good point about the potential for people to become a bit relaxed about getting their vaccines. And that's probably a good message to to make more prominent when it comes to those vaccination campaigns. That was science journalist Heidi Ledford from Nature. And Wendy John, thanks for joining me in the tea room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.